guys again. That was so nice of you to say. So when I was in college, there arose this new thing in the world, brand new thing, social media. And uh, yeah, there's a groan through the audience. And um, Facebook was the first thing that kind of cropped up. A few people I knew had MySpace, but it wasn't really a big thing. It was weird. You went there, and it just it never really took off quite like they wanted. But Facebook really has taken off. And I remember when Facebook came out, you had to have a college email address to sign up. And one of the things I really liked about it as a college uh, guy was like it asked you if you were single in a relationship or if you were um, interested in being in a relationship, you kind of had to give your relationship status. And I was a single guy on a college campus, and I'd sometimes sit in a class and I'd be like, I wonder if she's dating anybody, you know? And so Facebook was a way for me to know before I made a fool of myself. Or sometimes I would ask out a girl and then I would look at her Facebook says she's single, but she insists she's, when I ask her out, that she's dating someone. But anyways, um, all you could do was post statuses like, Alex is studying, Alex is going to the library. You couldn't put these long posts and stuff like you can now. But then I never imagined how social media was going to take over the world. It's been 20 years since then and social media really has changed our global landscape. There's 4.8 billion social media users worldwide. 60% of the global population is on a social media platform. 93% of all internet users have at least one social media profile. And it's crazy to think about what life was like before that. I try to think back to college before I got on Facebook and how different life was. Um, and it doesn't seem like I've been alive for 40 years until I realize how much the world has changed in my lifetime. Life moves very quickly. And turning 40 has made me introspective about how I'm spending my time, what kind of person I am becoming, and how I want to spend the rest of my life. And so that's what we've been doing for the last few weeks is working through a series about contentment. We've been on this journey together to find out how to best spend our lives. And we've had this thesis statement that I've been saying every message. Does anybody remember it? Nobody remembers it? Okay, that's okay. I've said it five times now. We'll say it a sixth time. Maybe by the end. Um, Andy Stanley used to say, until you're sick of saying something, it, people are just beginning to hear it. So here we go. To become like Jesus, that is to become people of love and to learn contentment, these are the greatest treasures on earth. This is what you should be spending your life on. This is what will bring your life meaning and purpose. To become like Jesus, that is a person of love, and to learn contentment, this is the greatest thing you can spend your life on. So today, in that thought, we are looking at the concept of humility. And so what do we mean by humility? What does this have to do with contentment? The Center for Healthy Minds, um, there's a scientist there named Pellin Kesseber. Um, Pellin likens humility to a fertile soil in which happiness and contentment grow from. In fact, the word humility comes from the Latin word humus, which means earth or soil. And so we're going to talk about humility today because this is what you need in order to grow contentment in your life, to grow, to become a person of love in your life. So what is humility? Um, humility is broadly defined as the ability to see oneself in true perspective and to be at peace with it. You see your strengths and your weaknesses, and you're at peace with it. There are three components that support this definition. A healthy relationship with yourself, a healthy relationship with others, and a healthy relationship to reality. 
Um, the scientist studying this at the Center for Healthy Minds says, humble people harbor neither an exaggerated high view nor an exaggeratedly low sense of self-importance. Humble people are able to tolerate an honest look at themselves and non-defensively accept their weaknesses alongside their strengths. This untroubled, serene, secure relationship to oneself diminishes our need to constantly monitor and defends one's self-worth bringing about freedom from a never-ending and exhausting tendency to compare ourselves to others. Let me just repeat that last line again, because I think this is key. Humility diminishes our need to constantly monitor and defends, defend our self-worth, bringing us freedom from the never-ending and exhausting tendency to compare ourselves to others. If we're going to become people who are content and people of love, we need humility. And once again here, modern researchers, as we've seen all throughout this series, are tapping into something Christians have been saying for 2,000 years. Look at what Paul wrote to the church in Philippi in 50 AD. In Philippians 2, verses 3 through 8, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider, yourself, or consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be clung to or grasped to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, um... Sometimes I've found in the church, as Christians, we have weird theology about humility. We act like humility is trashing yourself. Uh, you know those people who are ever fishing for a compliment, and they're like, my outfit's so ugly today. It's just so hideous. And you're like, no, it's not. It's, you look beautiful. You look great. Or you know those, those really annoying people who are like, oh, it was the worst sermon I've ever preached. Or I'm a terrible pastor. I'm so bad at this. And Darby's like, stop fishing for a compliment. It was not your worst sermon. You're not terrible at this. Stop it. She hears that a lot. She gets sick of it. Um, Self-loathing is not humility especially manipulative self-loathing to force someone to give you a compliment when you're like, I'm so bad at this, and you really want people to say, you're really not that bad, you're actually quite good. Some branches of Christianity also take a weird version of humility where they emphasize our sinfulness by talking about our depravity all the time, so much so that our depravity ends out canceling out, or it, we just seem to hear a lot more about our depravity than we do about God's generous grace. I call this worm theology. Where they're like, oh, I'm a lowly worm. How could God ever love a lowly worm like me? I'm just garbage and filth and I'm no good. And um, This extreme tendency, this extreme tends to put an unhealthy focus on the worst of us and ignore all the good that is in humanity. Like, God has put good in there. Good placed there by God. In a weird way, it somehow moves the focus off of Jesus and his redemptive work to save us from the worst of ourselves, and it somehow makes us the center focus. Somehow, in a weird way, talking about how wretched we are somehow makes us the focus rather than Jesus and his generous grace towards us. Humility is not fixating on your sinfulness. You need to be honest and realistic about it. Uh, humility is, after all, being honest about your weaknesses and your failures and your sins and how they've shaped you and how they've shaped your relationships. But it isn't wallowing in this, like, weird despair pity paul tells us to have a high regard for others not a low regard for ourselves um, you'll notice here as we go back to the passage that he says 
Um, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. And um, the English translation here is a little tricky because the Greek is a little strange. But essentially in the Greek what it says is we should stop focusing on esteeming ourselves and figure out how to esteem others. We should stop focus on how, in, how to get our name out there bigger and figure out how we can build up others. We should stop focusing on what people can do for us and focus on what we can do for them. In other words, you don't have to tear yourself down to build others up. In fact, the more confident we are, the less we're worried about protecting our fragile self-image at all. We don't have to be like, oh, I'm so terrible because you're so wonderful. That's a weird way of like fishing for a compliment again. And it's this, it's this weird thing we do as humans. Um, I have an Xbox, but I have lots of friends who have a PlayStation. And you're like, what does this have to do with anything? It does, just hang on. People online fight back and forth about which is better. Xbox is better, PlayStation is better, because this and that. Almost 99% of the time, they play the same games <coughs> exactly the same way. And I'm like, you don't have to tear down PlayStation to enjoy Xbox. You don't have to tear down Xbox to enjoy PlayStation. Just play games on it, have a good time. But people online are like passionate about this. There's message boards online where people just rant and rant and rant. It's kind of like the discussion between Star Wars and Star Trek. Like, which one's better? Just enjoy one. I don't care, you know? <coughs> they can both be good. One doesn't have to be bad for the other one to be good. So humility is not saying, well, I must be bad for, the, for me to build up this other person. In conversations, in relationships, we shouldn't be thinking, how can I look good? How can I protect myself? How can I protect the carefully curated picture of myself that I share with the world? Instead, we should ask ourselves, how can I help others feel empowered? How can I help them feel loved? How can I help them feel safe? How can I, like Jesus did, humble myself to serve and sacrifice for others? That's what Paul said. Jesus humbled himself, became obedient, went to the cross, and on the cross, he died to save us. And so Paul says we should follow that example. We should say, how can I humble myself to empower others, to love others, to keep them safe? <coughs> In the words of C.S. Lewis, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking less often of yourself. I think that's a good, helpful definition as we talk about this. Now, I grew up in a family that this was kind of our family motto. You need to be the smartest person in the room. And so that meant I studied hard and I worked hard because I needed to be at the top of my class. I needed to be at the top of my peers. If my peers studied five hours for a test, I studied 10. If they did two revisions of their report, I did five. You know, I, I had to be the best. There was a relentless pressure that came with this philosophy. And it made me constantly feel like I was measuring myself against everyone else in the room and constantly pushing myself forward, leaving no time to love other people. I saw people as people to be smarter than rather than people to serve. And there's an, another unrelated problem with this philosophy. If you're the smartest person in the room, all the pressure is on you to have the best idea or to make the good decision. You need to find a bigger room. Secure people surround themselves with people smarter than them so that they can keep learning. So you can have new perspectives. Insecure people surround themselves with people less intelligent than them so they can nurse their fragile egos and feel smart. What I find is when I get in a room with people smarter than me, I get smarter. 
instead of now being like, oh, how can I get smarter than these people and become the best? Because I have to be the smartest person in the room. Uh, now I say, oh, I need to find a bigger room where I can learn from new people. Proud people want to look smart. Humble people want to be smart. Our pride tells us to protect our image, and our humility tells us to care for the person in front of us, not just the person in the mirror. In Proverbs 3.34, it says, God blocks, blocks the way of the proud, but he showers undeserved good on the humble. Now, which would you rather have? Would you rather have God standing in your way, or would you rather have God rooting for you, cheering you on, and giving you unexpected good? I know which one I'd rather do, but many times pride sneaks in. I don't choose humility. In the Middle Ages, when a young person went into ministry, they were given a human skull. Now, when I went into ministry, they gave me an ordination form, not as cool as a skull. Um, and I got a, you know, a master's degree in ministry, and I was like, this is not as cool as a skull. But you were given a human skull, and you were supposed to keep it on your desk or in your bedchamber. It was called a memento mori, which in Latin means a memory of death or remember you have to die. And the thought was that young, arrogant people going into ministry needed reminding that one day they would die, that the church existed before them and would exist long after them, that God didn't need them, but God was eager for them to partner with him to spread the good news of Jesus, that he had and was defeating sin and death through his life and death and resurrection and ascension. Jesus doesn't need us. He doesn't need Horizon. He doesn't need you or me, but he loves to include us. When my daughter helps me on a project, it slows the whole thing down. I do not get done early. It doesn't make it easier. Um, one morning this week, she decided to help me eat breakfast because I always help her eat breakfast. And so she's like, I'm going to help daddy eat. Food was everywhere. Very little of it got into my mouth. I had several stab wounds from where she took the fork and stabbed it into my face when she was trying to get it in my mouth. I was still hungry when I went to work at the end of it, but literally that's the best breakfast of my life. I loved it. Now, could I have eaten so much better without her? Yes, but I love to include her because I love spending time with her. Jesus doesn't need you to reach the world, but he wants to reach the world with you because he loves spending time with you. Just think about that. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need our church. He doesn't need our money. Doesn't need, but he wants to include us because he loves spending time with us. Now, a memento mori probably sounds somber and maybe a little um, dark or sinister, but it really is a good reminder. We do not need to fear death because of Jesus's life and death and resurrection, but death is the great equalizer. Think about this. The richest person in the world is going to die. The most successful person in the world is going to die. The person who has what you want that you think you really need in life is going to die. The most intelligent person will die. The ordinary person and royalty all die the same. A memory of death reminds us to be thankful for life, even if it isn't always the life we anticipated or the life that we thought we were going to have. A memory of death reminds us to be thankful for what we have right now. Now, my goal in this message is, isn't to make you melancholy, but to give you some perspective. The world doesn't need me to keep spinning, and it doesn't need you to keep spinning either, so you can rest. You can take a breath. Everything doesn't depend on you. You don't make the sunrise. You don't make the ocean tides flow in and out. God's hands hold the universe together. He was doing it long before you were born. We'll be doing it long after we are gone. 
Sometimes busyness is an attempt at feeling important, an attempt at feeling needed and necessary. Humility frees us of all that. It allows us to be content right where we are. Humility frees us to love others because we recognize that really we are small players in God's grand design. There's something incredibly freeing about knowing your purpose on earth isn't to be the greatest. That everything in the cosmos is hanging on you. It's not your purpose to be the biggest. It's your purpose to learn to love the people in your life well. Not just if no one, um, especially if no one notices or celebrates it. That's your purpose. In my early 20s, there was this real push in the Christian circles I was in for radical Christianity. Maybe you may remember this um, 20, 20, 15 years ago or so. I think the roots of this were really good. Millennials wanted a deeper faith than their parents' generation. We saw our parents go to church on Sunday, but then spend the rest of the week kind of hating their neighbor and being relatively grumpy towards everyone in their lives. Um, I knew a lot of Christians who got up and sang on Sunday and gave all these testimonies, but then they were just really jerks at work when I worked with them, and everybody couldn't stand them because of how toxic they were. And I was like, something's wrong about this. And so I think there was this real drive in my generation. We wanted a different kind of faith. And there started to be all these speakers and these books around this topic of radical Christianity. And I keenly remember three that really shaped my um, my young adult life. I read Crazy Love by Francis Chan and Radical by David Platt and Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. And there, there are good things in all these books. Um, but they ended up pretty much saying the same thing. You needed to do something big and important for God. You only had one life, so you better burn out bright for Jesus by becoming a missionary to a remote jungle tribe or starting a church in the post-Christian Northeast or selling all your possessions and starting a homeless center. They celebrated extraordinary acts of Christian obedience. And I think in some ways the pendulum had swung so far over to this real, like, barely Christian, you know, middle space that maybe it needed to swing back. But what I found for my generation was this pressure to have an extraordinary spiritual moment made us feel like our ordinary moments didn't matter. That if it wasn't big or flashy or a huge sacrifice, then somehow it wasn't valuable. And I think this ended up making us have shallow and weak faith. And I think a lot of my friends have deconstructed their faith now because we were told the most important moments of our life would be big or flashy or some kind of crazy, extraordinary moment. And I think the most important moments of your spiritual life will be small, ordinary moments that don't seem special or extraordinary in any way. My generation ended up chasing the spectacle instead of the spiritual. We thought if there wasn't a spectacle, somehow it wasn't spiritual. And I really believe the things we do in secret, not the things we do on stages, affect who we become most. The things we do faithfully year after year, often when it feels like nothing is changing, but we keep doing them because we believe what Jesus said and taught and lived. These are the things that shape us, that make us into people of love, the things that teach us to be content. Paul said it like this in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 11 through 12. This should be your ambition. Lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business. You should work with your hands, just as we taught you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Humility requires faith that the small, unseen things we do matter, that ordinary acts of love are changing the world 
your biggest impact will probably not uh, will not be what you do on stages, but how you quietly love people every day in the name of Jesus. Because you're not in a story about you. I'm not in a story about me. We, because we only see things from our perspective, we assume that we are the heroes of the story. We're the pro- protagonists. But actually, we're in a story about Jesus. This is his story. And that shouldn't scare you or disappoint you. It should take the pressure off. You don't have to be the best. You just have to play the role God has for you to be thankful, to love your neighbor, to work with your hands, and attempt to live as quiet life as possible. You're not the hero of your story. Jesus is. That doesn't mean that Jesus may not do incredibly extraordinary things with you, but it just means that if he doesn't, you can be just as content and just as happy because it's in the quiet moments that lives are most formed and shaped. It takes an enormous amount of pressure off your shoulders and frees you to live and love like he did when you realize he's the hero, not you. You don't have to worry about pleasing other people or living up to their expectations because the story isn't about you. Um, sometimes in video games, there's these side characters. They're called non-player characters. And they're just like standing around. And sometimes they just say things like, I've been working hard today. And you go click on them again. And they're like, I've been working hard today. And they just say the one line. And sometimes they'll have three lines. And you're like, ooh, they said something different, you know? But they're not the player. It's the main character. And these side characters, it's not really about them. They have a little role to play. And they do that. And you move on. And sometimes we think we're the hero of the story and we're not. Jesus is. Let's play the role he's given us. Love the people he's surrounded us with. And I think in that humility and recognizing our place in the story, there is a chance to learn contentment and become true people of love. So many people today are chasing going viral as if the likes and affirmation of millions of strangers will somehow help them love themselves. Paul says our ambition, our goal, should not be to make it big, but to lead a quiet life. Your goal for your life should be to flourish in obscurity. Um, A couple years ago, Darby had a video. We had just moved into our our new house, and she cleaned the floors, like one of the first days we moved in, because they were so dirty. Um, And it's, it's got like 10 million views or something now. Like, it's crazy. And she has tens of thousands of followers on TikTok because of it. Um, do you know what 90% of the comments were on that? Hey, fat pig, you should clean your floors more. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, going viral isn't going to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. It's going to show you that having a bigger stage just means you're a bigger target. The goal for your life should be to flourish in obscurity. And I'm not going to lie to you, for years that thought terrified me. What if I lived and died and no one remembered me? What was the point of being alive? What if I don't do anything that reshapes the world? To quote Star Wars, which is a superior franchise to Star Trek, you can find my blog online where I talk about it. I had delusions of grandeur. Uh, It's a quote from Star Wars. They use it a couple times throughout the series. Delusions of grandeur. I mean, I really thought I was special, and my story was going to be special, and that meant I was always discontent when the ordinary moments of my day didn't feel special. It's okay to be in an ordinary story because you have an extraordinary God. In all my daydreams of success and fame, I imagine taking Jesus with me. Very spiritual of me. I'm like, once I'm famous, 
I'll tell everyone about Jesus on a bigger platform. I imagine being given bigger platforms and wider audiences all to talk about Jesus. You know, so good of me. The only problem with that is Jesus doesn't follow us. We follow him. To quote John the Baptist in John 3.30, Jesus must increase, we must decrease. Somehow Jesus shows up bigger and brighter when we stop trying to stand in his limelight. And that frees me to live a perfectly ordinary life, to love my neighbors and co-workers and family, to be relatively unknown, to know Jesus and become like him and realize I am not a failure. If I have done these things, I have lived a good life. I have done what I was put here to do. Brother Lawrence was a monk who wrote a book called Practicing the Presence of God. Now, he entered the monastery looking for a spiritual fulfillment, like he had been a soldier, he had done these different things, and he's like, I'm going to enter this monastery, and they're going to have me chanting and praying and memorizing the Bible. I'm going to get so spiritual. And he walked in, and they're like, we need someone to clean dirty dishes in the monastery kitchen. And he's like, what? And they're like, have fun. And so for the rest of his life, until he got too old to stand at the sink anymore, he spent his life washing dishes in a monastery. Now, at first he was really annoyed that he wasn't going to spend his days in prayer and ritual and scripture, but he ended up writing this book called Practicing the Presence of God, and he wrote it about the profound experiences he had encountering God in the ordinary moments of washing dishes all day long. Ordinary moments are an invitation to be with God, to become like God and to do what he did. It takes humility to realize that and to seize them, though. God doesn't meet us on our timetable or in our preferred way. And Brother Lawrence is a great example of that. And I have found that in my 40 years of life, so often I've been chasing for the next spectacle instead of recognizing the spiritual in the ordinary and mundane moments of every day. I want to end with this quote with Brother Lawrence before we have four reflections. We ought not to be weary of doing little things for the love of God, because God regards not the greatness of the work, but the love with which any work is performed. Four reflections as we close. Where are you carefully trying to protect your image in your life? Maybe in your job, maybe in your relationship, maybe with your church, maybe with your community, whatever, maybe online. Where are you carefully trying to protect your image? Who are the people you're trying to protect your image with? You cannot love people well until you stop spending all your energy trying to protect yourself. Think about the places where you're trying to protect yourself and then say, how can I let that go so I can love people well? Number two, where do you tend to compare yourself to others? Release that desire to control to God. Embrace loving the people you are most tempted to compete with. Number three, third reflection, where is God working in your sphere of influence? How can you join him there? God's already at work in your world. He could do it better without us, but he wants to include us because he loves to spend time with us. And number four, how can you practice the presence of God in your ordinary, everyday life? It's in the ordinary moments that God most wants to rush in, teach us contentment, and turn us into people of love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you humbled yourself and came down from heaven, even though you're God, and made yourself like a man so that you could die in our place for our sins, so that you might save us, that you might take the throne of earth for yourself. God, forgive us for so often being proud when you, the only being in existence who has any right to be proud, 
chose to humble himself. God, teach us humility so that we might learn contentment, so we might become people of love. Help us to love others well because we're not busy protecting our own image or protecting our own selves. Let us join you where you're working because you love for us to be a part. And I pray all these things like I believe Jesus would. Amen.